Like George Wishard said, we are in the midst of stewardship season, and so for three weeks uh, we are going to use the book of Acts as our guide through um, a look at generosity and what it means to be stewards in this life. Our text for today comes from Acts chapter 5. Um, and it's a little bit of a complex text, but we are going to lean into it nonetheless. So here now um, for God's spirit speaking among these words from scripture from the book of Acts. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Ananias, Peter said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own property? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up Ananias' body and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your hus husband sold this land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to you, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit to the test? Look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and died. And when the young men came and found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all those who heard these things. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you heard the one about the five-word obituary? My best friend told me this while we were planning her father's funeral. She, a widow, apparently salty, about her long marriage to Bob, who is now recently deceased, was asked by the funeral director su to submit an obituary. And she wrote down two words, Bob's dead. The funeral director looked up and said, I'm sorry, the newspaper requires obituaries to be five words long. And so she took back the piece of paper, thought again, and said, Bob's dead, car for sale. An obituary tells a story. It demands sparse language and depicts a lifetime of love, or in Bob's case, love's opposite. 
Today's scripture passage is essentially a four-word obituary for Ananias and Sapphira. They lied. They died. That's the only sketch we get of their long, complex, shared life together. They lied. They died. If the newspaper required more words, maybe it would read, they lied, they died, all were afraid. And this is, this is a terrible passage, really. I don't know how I ended up with this passage, Bill, this week. Um, but here we are, nonetheless. Two people die, husband and wife, within hours of each other. And I'm a little sympathetic, too, to the trauma of Peter, actually, who witnessed both deaths three hours apart right after yelling at each of them. No wonder the community was afraid. But if we're going to lean into the book of Acts as our sacred text in the midst of this stewardship season for three weeks, wondering what it means to be the church, not just in the past, but in the now, then we can't really ignore this story. We might want to, but we won't. It has to do with money and possessions, and it gives us a chance to reframe what we have as something that's beyond just ours. It has to do with offering something precious, of great value to the community. And so it's a great text for Stewardship Sunday, a, a, a stewardship sermon. The story of Ananias and Sapphira is this microcosm unto itself, its own little complexity, a multi-pronged pericope, and to make matters that much more complicated, beyond the story of the text, it's us here in the sanctuary today, and we're not only in the middle of stewardship season, but we're still in the midst of the strangest, longest pandemic that any of us have been a part of. And we're also, as you can see, about to welcome the mystery of the Eucharist, this shared meal that ushers us into the presence of God in ways that are beyond words and that are rooted in ritual. And today at the table, we will read the names of those who have died in the last year, as is our tradition on the first Sunday in November when we celebrate All Saints Day. And so the intimacy of naming those we love will eclipse all else today. The act of naming will upstage sermon and sacrament, melody and message, because the names of those we love evoke more than any obituary ever could. And their name, read aloud, brings us close to them in ways we can barely mutter language to describe. So maybe one question this text bears for us today is, what does it mean to name Ananias and Sapphira among the community of saints? Or put another way, what does it mean to name Bob among God's beloved, the one whose five-word obituary lists his car for sale? What does it mean to carry with us loved ones whose imperfections are more potent than their good deeds? We each have at least one of them, probably. And maybe the question this text bears for us today is, in what ways are we like the early church, seized with fear? Was the fear that they had because of the death of Ananias and Sapphira, because they died so close in time to one another? Or was it because their death 
came alongside this great lie that they told, not just to one another or the community, but to God. It sounds as if the bigger fear at the heart of this story is that it could be any of us. Any day, any of us could be found out as imposters, people not living up to our own moral codes, less generous than we'd hoped, less kind, less compassionate. Maybe we've been dishonest with ourselves or others in ways that threaten our own lives and lead us down a destructive path we just can't quite face. Or maybe the question is, why did they lie in the first place? Were they afraid they would not be able to pay their college tuition for their children or their medical bills? Or was it about buying the latest iPhone and keeping up with the Joneses? Why not be honest about this change of heart that they had? I've been digging around in this text for days now, and it seems more strange and more murky every time I open the text. The deeper we get, the stranger it is. At the most simplest, the message could be, don't lie. And we've heard that before, right? We've known that since we memorized the Ten Commandments back in third grade. But Yale professor Willie Jennings reminds us that the death of Ananias and Sapphira should never be celebrated or treated flippantly as some morality case against lying to God. He pushes us to think about how there might be something deeper, about what it means to be human, about what it means to be community, about what it means to be vulnerable enough to step into the river of generosity instead of the swamp of greed and to become partner to hope instead of partner to dishonesty. My instinct, of course, when considering this text is to turn to the poets. You taught me that, Kenilworth Union Church, Barbara and May, Anne and Bill, Peter, Roger, Elaine, Leslie, so many of you have taught me to turn to the poets. And so let's look for just a moment. Environmental activist and Kentucky poet Wendell Berry says, and I'm sure you've heard this before, when despair grows in me and I wake in the middle of the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives on forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the peace of the world and I am free. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira like us spent years waking up in the middle of the night in fear of their lives and their children's lives. And finally, when they went down to the water, in early Christianity, this was the water of baptism, they became immersed in the peace of Christian community, free from fear, despite all the scary things in the world. But then they sold their home and sought to make an even deeper commitment to community, 
to that freedom and peace. But they became lost in those multiple fears, taxed not just by Rome, but by grief and panic. Maybe the day-blind stars became too obscured to help them find their way. Or what about Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes? He writes, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. The book of Acts riffs off the ancient prophets, saying, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Did Ananias and Sapphira catch that vision and glimpse that dream? And then suddenly shatter under the weight of it all, their life becoming a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Or what about poet Gregory Orr, who grew up in the rural Hudson Valley in New York State? He says to be alive, not just the carcass, but the spark. That's crudely put, but if we're not supposed to dance, why all this music? Did Ananias and Sapphira lose their spark along the way? Did they stop listening to the music, go deaf to the song, give up the dance? Did they forget this communal dance party that is our shared life together? And then there's English poet W.H. Auden. He says, all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. We must love one another or die. Sounds as if he read Ananias and Sapphira before writing this line of poetry. All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie. We must love one another or die. Auden seems to imply that the two of them, they could have unfolded this lie. They could have used their voice to walk backwards from their plot to deceive. They could have found a way for words to reveal their own fear of generosity and be honest with Peter about their questions of how to proceed. For generosity does not happen in a vacuum, but in relationship. Husband to wife, father to son, grandmother to granddaughter, friend to friend, generosity for generations has been impacting this moment for it to be made known. Generosity, resource sharing, philanthropy, stewardship, this is God-infused work, a sacred conversation between you and the one in whom you live and move and have your being. So if there is a should behind your generosity, if your gift is coerced, if freedom is lost on your way to the offering plate, then go back and listen again to God. Generosity is freedom. Our ability to share, our ability to give, to let go, is a gift of the Spirit. Generosity is a gift from God. On All Saints Day, we remember the unbroken generosity of those who have gone before us. Their obituaries were littered with love that was rooted in this kind of freedom to love in tangible ways, a gift freely given. On All Saints Day, we remember the way they taught us to live more generously, more gently, more compassionately. 
We let their love linger in our midst today, the tears on our cheek, the lump in our throat, a reminder of the wide spirit of love. So I will leave you with one final quote from an ancient text, boring enough to make Bill Evertsburg tremble with fear. Katie, you wouldn't really use the Didache in a sermon, would you? Really? Yeah, no, I'm going to. I will. The Didache, this ancient text, says, if we are partners in the eternal, if we are partners in the eternal, how are we not to be partners even more in that which perishes? If we are partners in the eternal, how are we not to be partners in that which perishes? May we live generously in the freedom of God's love. Amen.